I'm Sandy Cornish and I work with the Australian Catholic Bishops Conference Office for Social Justice. Thank you for joining our podcast, The Revolution of Tenderness. In this episode, I'm sharing some reflections on Catholic social teaching in the current world context. COVID-19 pandemic is the most obvious and dramatic feature of the current world context. It's impacting every dimension of our lives at present, our physical and mental health, our family and social relationships, how we are working or not working, how our households are meeting our material needs and the functioning of the economy at large. Our spiritual lives are also impacted personally and especially how we worship together and receive the sacraments. Even the way in which political life is conducted has been altered. Our experiences of this pandemic vary enormously and the unequal distribution of suffering tells us so much about our world. I saw a graphic on Facebook the other day that pointed this out in a very gracious manner. It was made up of a simple line drawing of a sailboat and the words, We are not all in the same boat, but we are all in the same storm. The storm in which we are caught is made up of a number of interconnected crises. The ecological crisis manifested in climate change, health-threatening pollution, the horrendous bushfire season we've just had, the destruction of biodiversity, more frequent and extreme weather events around the world, the water crisis, food insecurity for so many millions of people and the disruption of the relationships that make up the web of life on the planet, which we know can spark epidemics and um, even pandemics. Then there's the humanitarian crisis in which so many people are displaced by armed conflicts or extreme weather events, or are suffering from preventable diseases, hunger, dehumanizing poverty, and many forms of oppression. There's also a crisis of political authority and governance in which trust in institutions is low and globalisation too often functions without solidarity or sufficient accountability to local and national communities. Consequently, xenophobia and popularism are on the rise and extremist groups at either end of the political spectrum are turning to violence. Perhaps we can also speak of a crisis of meaning and purpose in which some turn to fundamentalisms of different kinds, others to syncretistic forms of spirituality, and many simply immerse themselves in materialism. The pandemic has given many people and movements pause, prompting introspection and reflection. Perhaps processes like the Plenary Council, which I'm very grateful has slowed down and stopped trying to put the Holy Spirit on a timetable, can actually be a form of soul-searching that will lead to renewal. The initial question for the Plenary Council was, what do you think God is asking of us in Australia at this time? This is a much more mission-oriented question than how shall we fix the church, because it embraces the social dimension of mission and reminds us that the church exists for the sake of God's mission in the world. 
So what has Catholic social teaching got to do with all of this? First of all, Catholic social teaching encourages us to pay attention to our world. It reminds us that faith is not about earning our way into heaven in the next life. It is about accepting God's invitation into the fullness of life, here and now and forever. God came to meet us in time and space as one of us. How then can we dismiss this life and this world as unimportant? Faith is about our love response to God's love for us, for each of us and for all of us and for all of creation. Every created thing and every created being speaks to us of our Creator. God continues to communicate with us in and through the world. This is why we pay attention to the signs of the times, seeking with the help of the Holy Spirit to discern in them God's call to us. What is God asking of us, right here, right now? So Catholic social teaching motivates us to care about our current world context and to accept the invitation to join Jesus' mission of building up the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. Pope Francis sums this up as responding to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. Secondly, Catholic social teaching helps us to discern our responses. It helps us to place our faith sources, as well as other wisdom sources, in dialogue with our current world context. In this way, Catholic social teaching generates wisdom to guide authentic Christian living. Through this dialogue with the people, places and events of history, Catholic social teaching itself continues to evolve. It doesn't simply produce ideas or pronouncements but rather guides us in ways of living and loving. The praxis of Christian living, as practical theologians like to say. So Catholic social teaching helps us to make God's love manifest in our relationships with ourselves, others, and the whole of creation. I want to pause here a little to say something about what Catholic social teaching is and how it works before coming back to the current world context. social teaching puts wisdom sources in dialogue with our context to help us to witness authentically to the gospel in the world today. It is the teaching of the church on matters of justice in society and in our relationship with creation. Personal and social morality are interrelated, but the social teachings are concerned especially with the social or intergroup level of relationships. Social morality is about how we can promote the justice of God's reign in the relationships between different groups in our society and in the world. Two very important faith sources that Catholic social teaching draws on are scripture and tradition. Tradition refers to the previous theological reflection and teaching of the church. It doesn't mean being traditional or just repeating what was done in the past without question. 
the sources of Catholic social teaching include but go beyond these faith sources. Uh, Catholic social teaching, and in fact all Catholic theological ethics really, also draws on reason and experience. We will want to draw on all available sources of human wisdom because God gave us intelligence and free will. This also helps us to engage on issues of justice with people who don't share our beliefs. But you can't have too much of a good thing. In the pre-Vatican II period, Catholic social teaching relied so strongly on reason that you could easily miss God in it. And I think it contributed to an operative understanding of Catholic social teaching as a philosophy and a Western one at that. All cultures and faiths reflect sparks of the design, so we can learn from all of them. One insight of the receptive ecumenism movement is the shift from dialogue that's aimed at identifying a commonality to dialogue aimed at receiving wisdom from one another. One area for growth and further development for Catholic social teaching is deeper engagement with the wisdom of cultures beyond those of Western Europe. The local churches of Asia and Africa have so much to contribute to the Universal Church, and this is clearly part of Pope Francis's agenda and way of proceeding. A key point that I want to make here is that if we leave out our faith sources, then we're simply talking about moral philosophy or social ethics, rather than theological ethics or practical theology. Of course, some of our friends and allies will be doing just that, but our Catholic social justice tradition ask something more of us. So, how do we live out of and contribute to the Catholic social justice tradition? It is important to understand that Catholic social teaching is not just a collection of universal principles to be applied to particular cases. This essentialist view of Catholic social teaching is actually implicit and sometimes even explicit in how some Catholic groups and organisations draw on the tradition, but it reflects a pre-Vatican II approach to moral theology. As well as principles for reflection, the teachings also contain criteria for judgment and guidelines for action. The key principles for reflection are sometimes called perennial or universal principles because they apply across every time and place. They are highly authoritative, but also rather abstract and general. The Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church identifies just four perennial principles. Human dignity, the common good, subsidiarity, and solidarity. Guidelines for action, on the other hand, can vary for different times and places because societies are so very different from one another and they're always changing. Just think about the impact of different political systems on the sort of action that's possible in any given place. Furthermore, guidelines for action always depend on judgments made with the information available at the time so there's often scope for legitimate differences of opinion. Criteria for judgment help us to connect general principles and the need for practical action guidelines in specific situations. Because Catholic social teaching is not just a tradition of thought, but also of action. 
It is a tradition that challenges us to get our hearts and heads and hands working together in an integrated and holistic way. Criteria for judgment are less authoritative and general than the principles for reflection, but more so than the guidelines for action. One example is the priority of labour over capital. This is a famous bit of Catholic social teaching jargon that means that labour, in other words people who work, are always more important than money, machinery or profits. It leads us to ask questions like, are working people being treated as less important than profit? In the current circumstances, we could ask if there are adequate protections in place for school teachers, or if instead their physical safety is being treated as less important than stimulating economic activity. You can see in this example that it isn't simply a matter of applying general principles. The answer to our question will depend in part on our understanding of how COVID-19 is spread and what measures can effectively control its spread. There are also other goods, as philosophers would say, at stake, like the well-being of disadvantaged students. So putting wisdom sources in dialogue with context is not just applying principles to particular cases. papal teachings and the teachings of local bishops and bishops conferences take positions on social and ecological issues. They don't just point out relevant principles. There are a range of themes in Catholic social teaching that have developed over time. They integrate principles, criteria and guidelines for action in relation to particular subject matter. For example, there's a rich body of teaching about people on the move, including migrants, refugees, asylum seekers and internally displaced persons. In order to live out of and to contribute to the Catholic social justice tradition, we need to get beyond the key principles and know the substantive content of the teachings. A question that students often ask me is how to find out what the position of Catholic social teaching is on a particular topic. Now I don't have a short simple answer so I'll put a link in the show notes to a talk that I recorded on this question for my students uh, for anyone who wants to follow up on, on this point. It is really important to know that the positions of Catholic social teaching continue to develop. Not only do situations change and new situations arise but our understanding of things even of key principles can deepen. For example we can take previously neglected experiences and perspectives into account more adequately. If you follow the footnotes in Laudato Si, you'll see that Pope Francis drew on the teachings of bishops' conferences from every inhabited continent. The local teachings, especially of the bishops of Asia and Africa, going back to the 1970s, informed the development of the universal teachings. The relationship between the international and the local teachings is mutual and reciprocal. To give another example, if you have a print edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church that was published before 2018, it won't contain the current teaching on the death penalty. For a long time, the Church held that the use of the death penalty 
could be justified in certain very limited circumstances, and those limits were drawn more and more tightly over time. Francis has taken the next step in the development of this teaching by confirming that the use of the death penalty can never be considered legitimate in the contemporary world. There are always adequate non-lethal options. In 2018, he authorised an amendment to the Catechism to reflect this development in the teachings, and you'll find it online. So be careful to think about any subsequent changes in teaching when you read any reference book or Catholic social teaching document. For example, the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church was published in 2004, and it tried to present a synthesis of the social teachings at that time. But of course it doesn't reflect the ways in which Benedict XVI or Francis have added to or further developed the teachings. So it remains a useful reference work, but it must always be read in the light of more recent teachings. So Catholic social teaching motivates us to care about our world and it provides principles, criteria, statements of position on issues, priorities and guidelines to help us to take action. What about methodology? Okay, I know, hardly anybody listening, quite possibly no one at all, was actually thinking, what about methodology? But sometimes our way of acting unconsciously embodies thinking that we don't consciously espouse. In fact, our way of acting can embody thinking that we actually disagree with. So it's important to turn our gaze back on ourselves as actors, to think about our methodology. Social psychologists call this reflexivity. One of the most famous methods in Catholic social action from the early 20th century is known as the Cardine method. See, judge, act. Cardinal Joseph Cardine developed this method for his work with illiterate young industrial workers in Belgium. And Pope John XXIII encouraged its use, particularly by young people, in his 1961 encyclical, Mater et Magistra. And it remains influential today. However, the world workers and Catholic theology have all changed a lot since Cardinal Cardine died in 1967. I think it's time to go deeper. One reason that I say this is that the way many people use this method appears to be encouraging an essentialist approach, simply applying universal Catholic social teaching principles to particular situations. If we think about it, behaving in this way implies that all necessary wisdom is already summed up in a few universal principles that we already know all about, and that the tradition is basically a cognitive exercise in the logical application of knowledge. People also sometimes use this, using this method, restrict Catholic social teaching to the judge stage of the process. I would suggest that the teachings can, and indeed should, also shape our seeing and our acting. So, how else might we go about living the Catholic social justice tradition? The expression, reading the signs of the times, 
sums up a major shift in the Church's way of being in the world in the post-Vatican II period. It leads us to quite a different approach to work for social transformation. However, many Catholics and Catholic organisations seem to have missed what this might mean in practice for their work for social justice. It means that we begin by reading the signs of the times, not in order to apply universal, timeless principles to them, but rather to discern with the help of the Holy Spirit God's action in the world and God's call to us. The text of history, or experience, is a source for the ongoing development of our Catholic social justice tradition, including its formal teachings. There is a mutually transforming relationship here. It's not just that we act upon the world to make it more just. The world also transforms us by teaching us about God. The pastoral spiral takes up this approach. It draws on the Cardine method and on Holland and Henriot's pastoral circle and develops them further. I believe that it's a more adequate tool for our times and so do the Federation of Asian Catholics Bishops Conferences. They've been using their own version of this methodology since the 1970s. This approach explicitly includes theological reflection, whereas the Cardine method conflates analysis and theological reflection in its judge stage. Theological reflection is something more than judging alignment with predetermined principles. It implies a contemplative rather than merely analytical gaze. Furthermore, today the word judge can be problematic. It can be confused with being judgmental and it can evoke a triumphalist church that sees itself as having the answers and the right to pass judgment on others. It is unhelpful language for a church whose moral authority has been deeply undermined by its own failure to protect children and vulnerable adults from abuse by people whom the church itself placed in positions of trust and leadership. This is a sign of the times, a fact of history that cannot be ignored without undermining our own credibility. Language like seeking insight or understanding making or uncovering meaning, discerning, taking a stand, or being in solidarity may be more helpful. It's humbler language and may avoid giving the impression of deducing a single correct answer or position. It makes space for feelings, the will and imagination, as well as the cognitive. So how do we read the positive and the negative signs of the times? Peter Henriot reminds us that God's action in history is discernible through carefully paying heed to one's feelings, causes of deepest movements, desires rooted in values, and steps towards action. Analysis is important, but if we wish to discern God's action in history, we also need to pause, to be still, to be silent and take a long, loving look at reality. In other words, to contemplate our world. This is not just an intellectual exercise. Henriot adds that it is also affective and effective. Affective in the sense of touching the deepest of our values and strongly motivating our responses. Effective in the sense of organizing our responses with planning, execution and evaluation. 
So we need to pray over what we see and the experiences that we are able to become aware of, asking where is God in all of this and noticing our interior movements. Reading the signs of the times can be understood as social discernment. Remember that plenary council question? What is God asking of us in Australia today? When we read the signs of the times, we also place wisdom sources in dialogue with reality and with one another. We draw on scripture, seeking to learn from the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and seeking to follow him. We ask ourselves, how does scripture speak to the signs of our times? Do particular passages come to mind as we contemplate our world? Are the values at play consistent with or in contradiction to those of the gospel? We can also ask others, including scripture scholars, to reflect with us and help us to identify how scripture throws light on our concerns. And we need not restrict our conversations to Catholics either. When we draw on tradition, we ask ourselves things like, what does church teaching have to say that sheds any light on this? Are there themes, concepts or principles that can help us to make sense of this? Are we the first or the only people to have grappled with this reality or similar ones? Spoiler alert, probably not. The experience of the Christian community through time and in different places can help us to interpret the signs of the times. The history of lived witness is part of tradition too, not just only documents. Discernment leads to a choice or decision. When we read the signs of the times, it's not just an intellectual activity. We are called to respond. This often entails a decision about who we choose to stand in solidarity with. Solidarity can take various forms, such as incarnational solidarity, institutional solidarity, and conflictual solidarity. Sometimes our solidarity can be disembodied, distant, or, or merely conceptual. The critique of clicktivism comes readily to mind. Kristen Heyer, a professor at Boston College, says that incarnational solidarity requires us to immerse our bodies and expend our precious energy in practices of concrete accompaniment in the real world. Solidarity also requires more than individual action alone. It requires an institutional or structural response too. Institutional solidarity calls for structures that offer marginalised people and groups a real voice in decisions and policies that affect their lives, so that our interdependence is marked not by relationships of domination and oppression, but by relationships of equality and mutuality. When we work for the justice of God's reign, we will be confronted by issues of economic and political power. While the church always seeks peace and unity amongst the human family, we sometimes need to take sides and to stand with those who are the poorest, the most pushed aside and excluded, those whose dignity and rights have been abused. We call it making a preferential option for the poor, but it's also been called conflictual solidarity. Circling back to where we began, what does all of this mean for Catholic social teaching in the current world context?
I said earlier that Catholic social teaching motivates us to pay attention to our world. It encourages us to contemplate where God is at work in the world right now and to listen attentively to God's call to us. In this time of pandemic, it's not hard to see God at work in the generosity and self-giving love of so many people. We need only think of volunteers providing food and other practical support to asylum seekers and refugees, to international students and temporary visa holders, and medical workers, carers, cleaners and grocery workers who are taking on risk for the sake of others. Then there are counsellors helping people with anxiety, depression or stress related to isolation, uncertainty or job loss and social workers and police assisting women in situations of family violence. Surely God is calling us to leave nobody behind, to care for one another and to make sure that everyone has what they need for a dignified life, regardless of their visa status or their employment status or any other status. This call speaks to the present moment but it is also a call to create a new normal for the future, marked by greater social and economic inclusion. In these strange days, whose paid or unpaid activities have actually proved to be the most important for the community? Are these people attributed high social status? Are they paid well, or even at all? Do they enjoy job security? Perhaps God is calling us to pay attention to how our labour market is functioning and to the appropriateness of treating human labour as simply a market economy. What might our tax transfer system and government services look like if they were animated by a commitment to the dignity of each and every person, the common good and the conviction that everyone has something to contribute? You might be surprised to find out how much our Australian bishops have actually said about these issues over the years. Have you noticed how clean the air and water have been, and how traffic and noise pollution have dropped? Have you found yourself consuming less, wasting less, wanting less? What have you been longing for, and what does this tell you about your place in the web of life? Can we help devise a recovery plan that will make our new normal more ecologically sensitive and sustainable? Have you noticed how people and groups have been thinking and acting outside their usual patterns? Political parties that have been critical of fiscal stimulus in previous crises have embraced the largest fiscal stimulus in Australian history. Employer groups and trade unions are working more closely together than they've done in a generation. And the National Cabinet makes us question why COAG hasn't always distinguished itself in pulling together for the common good. Lots of us old dogs are learning new technological tricks in order to stay connected with others. I wonder how many people over 70 learned to use Zoom since March, and how many carbon miles we could save in future by reducing our travel. Yet, as good as these tools are, their limitations make us appreciate the richness of embodied human encounter. Will we treasure relationships and community a little more after the pandemic? 
Last year, the Australian bishops issued a social justice Sunday statement called Making It Real, Genuine Human Encounter in Our Digital World. They couldn't possibly have known at the time just how pertinent it would be for our world today. I also said earlier that Catholic social teaching helps us to discern our responses to the current world context. I suggested that a pastoral spiral methodology helps us to contemplate reality. We try to get in touch with all relevant experience and perspectives. We pray and listen for God's call to us through this. We place faith sources and other sources of wisdom in dialogue with reality in order to seek meaning and understanding and to generate wisdom to guide us in Christian living. When you read the documents that communicate the tradition of Catholic social teaching, you will see that they don't simply apply a set of principles to reality to deduce positions and action plans. They bring together contemplation, analysis and theological reflection to provide guidance for authentic Christian witness in the contemporary world. And we put their content in dialogue with our own context to discern our responses. So I want to finish with an example of what I mean by sharing um, how the Vatican's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development have drawn on Catholic social teaching to discern responses to the current world context. On the 16th of May 2020, they released a Laudato Si year document with seven Laudato Si goals. I just want to share with you those goals um, so there's the, the name of each goal and then a range of uh, the particular things that it calls us to address. So firstly, response to the cry of the earth, greater use of clean renewable energy and reducing fossil fuels in order to achieve carbon neutrality, efforts to protect and promote biodiversity, guaranteeing access to clean water for all. Two, response to the cry of the poor, Defence of human life from conception to death and all forms of life on earth with special attention to vulnerable groups such as indigenous communities, migrants and children at risk through slavery. Number three, ecological economics. Sustainable production, fair trade, ethical consumption, ethical investments, divestment from fossil fuels and any economic activity harmful to the planet and the people investment in renewable energy. Number four, adoption of simple lifestyles. Sobriety in the use of resources and energy. Avoidance of single-use plastic. Adopting a more plant-based diet and reducing meat consumption. Greater use of public transport and avoidance of polluting modes of transportation. Number five, ecological education. Rethink and redesign educational curricula and educational institutional reform in the spirit of integral ecology to create ecological awareness and action, promoting ecological vocation of young people, teachers and leaders of education. Six, ecological spirituality. Recover a religious vision of God's creation. Encourage greater contact with the natural world in a spirit of wonder, praise, joy and gratitude. Promote creation-centred liturgical celebrations. Develop ecological catechesis, prayer, retreats and formation. And finally, number seven, emphasis on community involvement 
and participatory action to care for creation at the local, regional, national and international levels. Promote advocacy and people's campaigns encourage rootedness in local territory and neighbourhood ecosystems. So, Catholic social teaching has rather a lot to say to our current world context. There's always more to learn about the Catholic social justice tradition. I'm Sandy Cornish and I hope you'll join us again in the revolution of tenderness.